Listen to the word of God. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into a pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. For his presence, from his presence, earth and sky fled away and No place was found for them, and I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in them. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So reads God's most holy word. Today's text has to rank among the most disputed in all the Bible. Quite possibly at the very top of that list. The question it raises that's become so divisive is this. Are we looking forward to a thousand year reign of Christ on earth between this present world and the new heaven and new earth? Or Is Revelation 20 describing one more recapitulation of the church age before the new heaven and new earth arrive? 
That's the question. That's the heart of the question that has brought division for centuries, indeed millennia, in church history. And quite honestly, you wouldn't believe, or perhaps you would, how nasty the discussion can become between Christians as they attempt to answer this question. Are we looking forward to a thousand-year reign of Christ on earth between this present world and the new heaven and new earth? Or is Revelation 20 describing one more recapitulation of the church age before the new heaven and new earth arrive? For the record, I believe we're looking forward to a thousand-year reign of Christ on earth between this present world and the new heaven and new earth. We here at Grace Church believe that, as Kip has already mentioned. However, the distance between our view and that of many who answer this question differently is much narrower than we think, I believe, much narrower than we often hear. The question just posed, for instance, gets at this point. The key difference between amillennialism as we come to know it and historic premillennialism as we have endorsed through this series focuses in on Revelation 20, asking whether it speaks about a new era or another recap of the present one. That's what separates the two. Let's walk through Revelation 20 now and see how this works. I tend to think we'll see that the two stand side by side and take a different view on this chapter. I've found Greg Beale's commentary, for instance, very helpful through this series. But I find that I stand in a different place when we come to Revelation 20, and I think there's reasons for that, and that's what we want to walk through this morning. We'll separate this text into four parts, and you see them listed there in your bulletin. That will be our outline this morning. The final preparations for the millennium in verses 1 through 3. Then the millennial reign of Christ, verses 4 through 6. Next, the final defeat of Satan in verses 7 through 10. And then the final judgment of the unsaved in verses 11 through 15. It really is what we call just an exegetical outline, just dividing up the text according to the themes that are present there in the text. And we're going to walk through them together and see what we understand from this passage, this hotly disputed passage. So first, the final preparations for the millennium, verses 1 through 3. There really are only so many ways that we can interpret this text. Some say this thousand years isn't a reference to time at all, but is symbolic of the victory over the ancient serpent, the devil, Christ's victory over Satan. They say it's representative of that. The problem there is that nowhere else in all of apocalyptic literature, or so the scholars tell us, is there a place where something time-oriented is used to illustrate or symbolize something non-time-oriented. Time is routinely schematized in apocalyptic to give a neat rendering of history, and numbers are routinely symbolic in apocalyptic, as we've seen on many occasions while studying this letter, but there's no precedent for time representing something that's not time-oriented. 
and apocalyptic. So we are looking at something about time as we read about this thousand years. Others say this period symbolically represents the entire period between Jesus' ascension and his return, the entire church age. But if we're going to take that view, we've got to square it with the text, and let's look at how John describes the uniqueness of this period. Here in verse 1, is this symbolic of the entire church age between the ascension of Jesus and his promised return? Well, here's how it's described, and here's its distinctive. In verse 1, this angel that was coming down from heaven, holding the key to the bottomless pit with a great chain, clearly symbolic imagery here, seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, the devil, Satan, as we've heard him described earlier in this writing, and bound him for a thousand years, verse 3, and threw him into a pit and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until this thousand years are ended. There's the heart of the description of what this period looks like. And we have to grant that there are widely varying explanations that have been offered to tell us what this passage means. But we also have to grant that the key question to answer is, what did John mean when he wrote it? What did John want his readers to understand? And so we have to dig into the text first to see what it means right here to the people to whom it was written in order to appreciate most fully what it actually is saying to us. And I have to say here, my friends, it surely sounds like John is saying that the primary characteristic of this thousand-year period is that Satan is contained. He's bound and sealed from doing his evil work right up to and including his efforts to deceive the nations. Verse 3. That seems to be characteristic of what he's saying, and that description sounds like a new period of time to me. It sounds like a new era to me. It doesn't sound like this present era that we're living in. From chapter 8 on in this letter, John seems to be telling us that Satan is active during the church age. Harassing and harming God's people incessantly throughout it. To the full extent that he's allowed to do so. That's what Satan is doing during this period. That's what we've been reading. So, I would be hard-pressed to explain how verses 1 through 3 are intending to describe that very same window of time that we've just studied in the previous chapters. However, if this thousand years is a new period of time that falls between this present age and the new heaven and new earth, then we have another question that we have to answer. What is the purpose of such a time? I'm going to say a little bit about this now. I'll say a little bit more at the conclusion of the message this morning about the purpose of this time. But what I'll say right here is from the text of Revelation 20, there's not a clear answer to that question. What's the purpose of this thousand-year period? But I would say to you that from what we've studied, there are two key possibilities that are worthy of mention. First, although God's holiness demands His wrath, 
he is still, he still has a much longer fuse than his saints do. They're under the throne asking, how long before you'll avenge our blood? And God isn't doing that. So what, what, he's not avenging their blood yet. So I would say that he's still providing opportunities for people to come to repentance, just as he states, or as Peter states in 2 Peter chapter 3. God isn't anxious to draw this world to a conclusion, but He's going to be patient with this world until the full number of those who come to repentance come to repentance. That doesn't necessarily answer the purpose of the resurrection. That answers the delay of the second coming of Christ. A second part, and these two, I think, actually work together. They're not an either-or sort of option, the two possibilities, but there's an immediate picture and there's a bit broader picture. To me, the broader picture is that this period provides for a vindication of God Himself. An example, some might say, if we had just had the opportunity to experience Jesus' righteous rule, we would have repented. If we'd gotten to live under Christ's reign, we'd have come to saving faith. I don't think that's true, and I think we've seen that in the recent chapters of Revelation. However, giving a thousand years to that very opportunity will dispense with that objection. It's a vindication of God, His holiness, His wrath, His salvation. And all that follows here in 4 through 10 and following seems to lend credibility to that idea. So that's what I would propose to you as an answer to that question, what is the purpose of the millennium? But moving on, verses 4 to 6 now, the millennial reign of Christ. Verses 4 to 6 are a positive counterpart, I believe, to verses 1 through 3. This is the way several talk about this in writing on Revelation. There, in verses 1 through 3, the binding of Satan is the focus. Here, in verses 4 to 6, the reigning and blessing of true believers is the focus. Their resurrection, their coming to life to reign with Christ during this period of time during which Satan will be bound. So you've got opposite sides of the same coin in 1 through 3 and 4 through 6. But there's also a significant question about what John meant by this section, 4 through 6. What he wants his readers to understand from what he wrote in 4 through 6. The answers here generally fall under one of three basic headings, and we, we unpacked them a bit at the beginning of this series. It's either premillennialism, amillennialism, or postmillennialism. It's one of those three schools of thought that's going to capture what 4 through 6 is talking about, what it's telling us. So either this passage describes first one option, a lengthy season during which the Great Commission proves successful in winning the world to Christ, such that his enemies become his footstool and the church experiences the joy and peace of life together, honoring the principles of God's Word as they await the still future return of Jesus to take up his reign. That's one option. That's called postmillennialism. Or these three verses describe the spiritual reign of Christ along with His church during this present age as both the gospel and the rebellion of the unconverted advance side by side awaiting Christ's return 
to defeat his remaining enemies and usher in the new heavens and new earth. That's called amillennialism. Or inaugurated millennialism. Happening now. Those are two options. Or third, this passage describes an extended season of life under the reign of Jesus on earth that follows his return and his defeat of the beast and the false prophet with their followers. And also following the first resurrection that we read about here in these three verses. And the establishment of his kingdom on earth prior to the new heaven and new earth. That's premillennialism. And I believe it's this third description that John wants his readers to hear in these three verses. It's a position we've taken as a church. It's a position I hardly endorse personally. To, host, to hold to post-millennial view, we need to grant that Revelation was written prior to A.D. 70. And that all it describes up through chapter 19 was already completed by A.D. 70 and the destruction of Jerusalem. To hold the post-millennial view, you need to hold to that. But I truly believe that John wrote this letter in the 90s. And so it counts out that possibility. To hold to the amillennial view, we must grant that chapter 20 is a recapitulation of the church age, much like chapters 12 and 13 were and other places as we've seen through Revelation. We also have to grant that the latter part of chapter 20 is a retelling of the same battle that just happened in chapter 19. And Ezekiel 38 and 39 are held up as an example there. Ezekiel 38 and 39 talking about the final battle in Israel against Gog and Magog that's mentioned right here, and we'll talk a little bit about that in a few moments. But Ezekiel 39 seems to be a recap of the battle of Ezekiel 38. And so it's believed that Revelation 20 does a similar thing with Revelation 19. That's the amillennial view. But I honestly believe that there are key indicators right here in the text that lead us to believe that this chapter is not recap like that. But describes a whole new future era. And I see three indicators favoring this option in the text. So I'm going to walk through them. The first one is going to take a couple of minutes, so hang in there. I'll let you know when we're moving on to the next indicator. But for the next few minutes, three indicators favoring the fact that we are to see this verses 4 through 6 as a new era, not as a recap of the present church age. The first indicator takes us back into verses 1 through 3 for just a few moments. And it emphasizes the point that it just doesn't seem to me that John's description of the work of Satan in this letter would lead us to believe that he's been bound and shut in and sealed and kept from delivering or from deceiving the nations during this age. I grant that Jesus stated in his teaching about his casting out of demons, Mark, or Matthew chapter 12, that one cannot enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, referring to Satan, 
Jesus was, and therefore suggesting that Satan is bound. Jesus also said that Satan had already been defeated, thrown down like lightning from heaven, Luke 10. So those are things that argue in favor of the amillennial view. But thrown down is also the very language that was used to describe Satan's expulsion from heaven here in Revelation chapter 12, verse 9. Satan was thrown out of heaven. Do you remember back in chapter 12? The earth was his destination at that point, and his angels were thrown down with him. In that passage, he was called the deceiver of the whole world. And that section finishes with a loud voice in heaven saying, Woe to you, O earth and sea. Why? For the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows his time is short. Doesn't sound to me like he's absent from this world during the age of the church. So it just doesn't seem to me that what we read in verses 1 through 3 describes what the church is experiencing with regard to Satan and his work in this age. What Satan is doing in this age seems to me to be better described by passages like Ephesians 6. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the cosmic powers over this present darkness and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Or in Ephesians 2, you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Satan is deceiving the nations. Right now, 1 Peter 5, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Right now, today. 1 John 4, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. There's a word of encouragement. God is active in his people. 1 John 5, verse 19. This is the last one I'll list. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. 1 John 5, 19. I believe these passages describe better what we see today. I believe they describe the church age, and I don't believe Revelation 21 through 3 is talking about that period of time. Also, this binding of Satan in verses 2 and 3 here, I would say just can't refer to the victory Jesus won over the enemy, uh, over the enemy at the cross. There are some who would want to say that the binding of Jesus is referring to Christ's victory at the cross. I don't think it can mean that. Otherwise, what does John mean here in verse 7 and 8 when he says that when this thousand years is ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations again? 
Surely John is not saying that Jesus' victory at the cross will be set aside or, or, or temporarily suspended at some point in the future. So when he's talking about the binding of Satan, I don't think he can be talking about the work of Christ on the cross. This binding must be looking forward to a future season during which Satan's activities will be limited even beyond what Jesus initially secured for us through his victory on the cross. But it's a day we haven't seen yet. So that's the end of the first indicator. That's just one of the three indicators that uh, make me think that a premillennial reading of Revelation 20 is preferred over an amillennial reading. The second indicator favoring this is I believe that verse 5 is speaking of a bodily resurrection of those who have been identified throughout this writing as conquerors, going back especially to chapters 2 and 3. It's not just the literal martyrs who lose their lives for their proclamation of the gospel, but it's also those who have walked faithfully with Christ through all forms of persecution. All of these together are raised and reign with Christ in verses 4 through 6. Verse 4, those who have been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their forehead or their hands. So it's all of them together. These conquerors will be raised to life and given a resurrection body in order to reign with Christ during this glorious period of world history. I believe that's what Scripture is teaching, particularly Revelation 20, verses 5 and 6. The New Testament storyline just seems to resonate with this view to me. I find it hard seeing this differently. Seems to resonate with this view rather than with the idea that this resurrection refers to the spiritual resurrection believers experience when they receive Christ as Savior. You were died with Christ, you've been raised with Him. Romans 6, Colossians 3, other passages. That is a true statement. I don't believe that's what this resurrection is talking about. I think this is talking about a bodily resurrection of the righteous. For reasons we've already mentioned, but then the second resurrection comes down in verse 13 where we read that the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. I believe the first resurrection is the resurrection of the righteous. The second is the resurrection of the wicked for final judgment after this millennium is finished. So again, what John is describing here seems to be future still, not present. That's the second indicator. The third indicator favoring this view is that the flow of recent chapters here in Revelation suggests that this thousand-year period is a new era, a progression, not a recap, a moving forward, moving through a sequence of events, not recapping a sequence of events. We see this progression through the last three chapters. Chapter 18 tells of the destruction of Babylon. Chapter 19 of the beast and the false prophet. And then chapter 20 of Satan himself. Now, I have to say, based on what we have, how we've covered Revelation prior to this, that this sequence could surely be retelling the same victory three successive times with a different focus each time. That's entirely possible. First Babylon, then the beast and the false prophet, then Satan. 
that would be consistent, not just with apocalyptic generally, but with much of what we've seen so far in this letter, that type of recap, especially through the trumpets and bowl judgments. We've pointed out how those seem to progress side by side like they're telling the same story, and the next round just intensifies the previous. But placing this thousand-year period between the final destructions of the beast and the false prophet and the destruction of Satan, beast and false prophet on one hand, Satan on another, then also putting this thousand-year period between the first and the second resurrections seems to me to be calling us to recognize these events as being similar but separate from one another. Separate from one another on each end of the millennium, not at the same, not the same events retold in one place and then another. I'd love to spend some more time on that, but we need to move on, and more clarity will come to that point, I think, as we progress. We move now into verses 7 through 10, the final defeat of Satan. And continuing on in a similar theme to what we were just on, there are reasons why we might believe that this description of Satan's final defeat here in verse 9, after he's been released from prison and has come out to deceive the nations, there are reasons why we could believe that this is a retelling of the battle just mentioned in chapter 19. There are several reasons why we might see that. The, the, the brief reference to Gog and Magog here in verse 8 on the heels of having recalled that very same story of Gog and Magog, as we mentioned last week in chapter 19, verse 17, when the birds were called to come gorge themselves on the flesh of kings, that's taken directly from the story of Gog and Magog. So that's one reason why we might see them as the same. Both of them make reference to this section of Ezekiel 38 and 39 and the battle of Gog and Magog. The similar uh, descriptions here of the gathering for battle in verse 8 on the broad plain of the earth, verse 9, is another. We talked about the gathering for that final battle back in chapter 19 and also in chapter 16 when Armageddon was first mentioned. From that, we could see these as talking about the same event. And the quick work that's done to defeat the enemies at this final battle is a third similarity between them, even though here the means of victory is made a little bit more explicitly clear. Verse 9, fire came down from heaven and consumed them. They were gathering for, for a, a bloodthirsty battle, and God struck them down from heaven. Fire coming from heaven is usually talking about lightning. They were struck by lightning and defeated. Wow. Those things could make us view these events as similar, the destruction of Satan and the destruction of the beast and false prophet at the end of, seven, or end of 20 and the end of 19. But again, John's separation of these two resurrections at either end of this thousand years makes it seem more likely that his similar separation of the judgment of the beast and false prophet from the judgment of Satan was equally intentional and particularly discernible when we read in verse 10 that Satan was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and false prophet were. 
where they already were. They were there before Satan was thrown in. And then this later battle, and he's thrown into the place where they already were. I think that's another one of those hints in the text that we're talking about. Separate events here, separated by a thousand years. Now, for the sake of the people in the booth, I'm going to go back to the slide I just skipped, all right? wanted to finish that thought, but a quick aside here on Gog and Magog, because we need to comment on that. Um, it's a mysterious reference. It's mysterious in Ezekiel 38 and 39. It's not just mysterious here in Revelation 20. But Gog and Magog, that mysterious ruler and land, as they are identified explicitly in Ezekiel 38, they are, they are the end times opponent of Israel in Ezekiel 38 and 39, that God will defeat for a particular purpose. He's sort of vindicating himself in that text. It's one of the ways that we get a vindication of God in Revelation 20, right? But God is said explicitly in Ezekiel 38, 16, that he's defeating these opponents to vindicate his holiness before their eyes. And then in later in verse 23 of Ezekiel 38, to make himself known in the eyes of many nations that they may know that he is the Lord. If we took some time to go back into this text, we would see that in Ezekiel 38 and 39, God is defending his love for his people even though he has sent them off into exile. Ezekiel is an exilic prophet. He has sent them off into exile, but he's not betrayed them and he's not turned his back on them. As a matter of fact, when in the end times, forces come against them. This, this mysterious group, Magog, led by Gog, approaches. He's going to defend, and he's going to strike them down with the sword and with fire. The same things we read in Revelation 19 and 20. He's going to strike them down swiftly in defense of his own holiness and defense of his love for his people, to make it known that he is the Lord. So this reference to Gog and Magog here ties in Revelation 20 richly with Old Testament teaching that anticipates the final days. And it's striking, the progression of the final chapters of Ezekiel with the final chapters of Revelation. There's another of those parallelisms that we just don't have time to dig into this morning. But let's just at least appreciate how rooted in Old Testament teaching this present passage still is, even though it's looking to a future time. Finally, verses 11 to 15. Finally in this chapter and finally in this letter of Revelation, before John's vision of the new heaven and new earth begins in the very next verse, chapter 21, verse 1, finally comes the resurrection of the unconverted to face the judgment of God before the great white throne. That's what it's called in verse 11. Look at verse 12. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead, that is the unconverted dead, because the believers have already been resurrected in that first resurrection. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. All people, all people will ultimately answer to God. 
And once that happens, verse 14, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, eternal death, we might say, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And thus ends the Bible's telling of the story of this present world. One additional clarification and one final application before we finish this morning. One final clarification has to do with the nature and purpose of the millennium. Many believe this thousand year period is a Jewish state which promises, in which the promises of, to Old Testament Israel that are believed to, be, to remain unfulfilled will finally be delivered. But I do not believe it is best to understand it that way. Revelation is not written to address the destiny of the Jews. It is written to address the destiny of the church. The new covenant community from all the nations. That's made most evident as this letter is explicitly addressed to seven mostly Gentile churches in Asia Minor. But also, as unbelieving Jews are twice referred to in this letter as a synagogue of Satan. The Jews had turned their backs on Christ. They will turn again, Romans 11 tells us. But we'll get to that in a moment here. If we want to understand, though, the relationship between the Jews and Gentiles in Christ, Romans is the letter for us. That teaches on that subject with great and meticulous clarity. Galatians is also quite helpful in understanding the relationship between Jews and Gentiles in Christ. So is Ephesians, especially the first three chapters. Embracing the good news of Israel's Messiah by faith to use the words of Paul in Ephesians, breaks down the dividing wall of hostility between believing Jews and believing Gentiles, creating one new man in place of the two and so making peace. That's how Jew and Gentile come together. They come together by embracing by faith Israel's Messiah and being formed into one new man as a result. The new covenant people of God, promised in Ezekiel, promised in Jeremiah, fulfilled in Jew and Gentile coming together just as God had promised to Abraham. Through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Paul uses the image of an olive tree in Romans 11, suggesting a Jewish root which has both Jewish and Gentile branches grafted into it. One plant. There's one new covenant, people of God. It's the church, the body of Christ, His bride. It includes Jews and Gentiles together, just as God promised to Abraham when He called Him the father of many nations in Genesis 17. Both Jews and Gentiles enter into this fellowship of the new covenant community by faith in Jesus and the finished work of Israel's promised Messiah. And they form one people of God when they do. 
Old Covenant Judaism will not return in the end times. The law was never intended to save, nor is it able to save. Animal sacrifice is obsolete and offensive once Jesus has come. We see all this when Jesus curses the temple, often called cleansing the temple. But it's clarified to be a cursing of the temple as Mark writes about it, anchoring it into the cursing of the fig tree in Mark chapter 11. We see all this come together again when Jesus prophesies that the, uh, of the temple's destruction in Mark 13. We just read it a little earlier in this service. Israel will turn to Christ in the last days. They will turn to Christ, but they'll turn to Christ. They'll receive Christ as Savior. And in so doing, they'll be incorporated into the new covenant community. And all the promises of God to them will be fulfilled in Christ for all eternity, proving that God is faithful to His promises. That's the one final clarification that just needs to be spoken about this passage of Scripture with regard to much of what has divided the church on this point. Now, the one final application. This, this comes to us in the language of the fifth of seven blessings in this letter, and you see it right there in verse 6. Here's our application for today. Here's our encouragement. Verse 6, blessed and holy. Think about that. Blessed, that means entirely approved by God. Bringing joy to God's heart and the joy of God bringing joy to our hearts. Blessed and holy. We understand holiness by this point in Revelation, right? That's our inheritance in Christ. The God that is so holy that the, the creatures immediately around His throne have to affirm it three times because once isn't enough. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. Now, this blessing in chapter 20, verse 6, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. That is, those who have not worshipped the beast or its image and have not received his mark on their foreheads and their hands, drawing from verse 4. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. My friends, that's you and me. Each of us who have trusted Christ as Savior. We enjoy the approval of God and we look forward to the future blessing that comes as this present world draws to a close. Right here in Revelation 20, verse 6, are some rich words that we lose because of the theological debates that happen over this tax passage. Over such people, the second death has no power. Is that good news today? Do you rejoice in that today? Over such people who are in Christ, the second death has no power. You want something encouraging as you leave here today? Don't fix your hope in the uncertainties of these things. We still wrestle with them. You've heard my best effort this morning, but somebody else could stand up here behind me and try to persuade you otherwise, someone we would know and love and respect. Don't fix your hope there. 
Fix your hope in Christ. Fix your hope in the one who can deliver the blessing of God and deliver on the holiness that's promised in Him. The one in whom we can trust such that the second death has no power over us. There's our hope. There's our encouragement. Amen? Amen. Over such, the second death has no power. But we will be priests of God and of Christ, and we will reign with Him for a thousand years. Praise God, from whom all blessings flow. Let's pray now together and share in the supper that anticipates that day. And musicians and communion servers, please join at the front. Heavenly Father, thank you for Revelation 20. Challenging as it is to understand and to plug into world history, we thank you for the promises that are present here and for the assurance that is present here. And for the comfort of knowing that we can enjoy your blessing and that we can receive your imputed righteousness that makes us holy through faith in Christ, the one whose return we are all anticipating. From every vantage point, from every view, wrestling with this text to figure out what it means, we are all looking forward to the return of Jesus. And we say together, with the text itself in the coming chapters. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. We yearn for you and for that day when we will drink the fruit of the vine with you again that we have anticipated at this supper that simultaneously remembers your sacrifice that has incorporated us into your family. Oh, Father, may we eat with great hope and expectation this morning, thankful for that which you've accomplished in the past and anticipating that which you will surely deliver in the future for your glory, for our good, for the fulfillment of your promises and the salvation that you have granted. And in the mighty name of Jesus, whose work has brought it about, amen.